podcasts. Podcasts. And go. Okay. Go. Okay. Hello. Welcome to episode 77 of the world famous Tedgepod Zoology Podcasts. Uh, I'm Zdenek Burian and I podcast with. Um, um, uh, Beverly Halstead. <laughs> Beverly Halstead. Halstead. Uh, yeah. Formerly. Uh, LB Tarlow changed his name and then, then was Halstead Tarlow with a hyphen in the middle for a while. Um, so, you know what we're going to do at the start of the show? We're going to do some FU, John. So, um, is there like a, is a jingle for that you've been working on? Got all the jingles lined up there? Oh, yeah, I should do an FU jingle, shouldn't I? <laughs> you really should. <laughs> Just shout, shout the word FU really loud and then some, <laughs> some, some, with some star explosion sounds around it star um, explosion sounds okay yeah. f you john f you darren so i uh i uh went to the trouble of listening to episode 76 oh god it was terrible and um <laughs> a bunch of corrections so uh in probably in the incorrect order uh albert chen's blog is not called alberta nikus that's his handle his uh, blog is called <laughs> Raptor Maniacs. The IVPP is properly the Immediate Vesting Personnel Pension. No, personal pension. No, it's the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. I think I screwed up on that last time. Um, shame, German, shame. Yeah, shame. The, the German originator of what can be considered the prototype. If you, if you listen to last time, we had this that whole section at the end about the AAH uh, and non-standard hypotheses in human uh, evolution or hominid evolution or hominin evolution. Uh, the German originator of what's considered the ancestor of the AAH was Max Westenhofer. And I should have mentioned him. And then... I also want this. I didn't really get this wrong, but I kind of want to uh, like say a bit more about it. Um, the AAH was famously, you know, in its modern incarnation, devised and promoted by the late Elaine Morgan. And uh, I mentioned that she that her famous book was The Aquatic Ape, or I can't remember. I might have used a different title, but it it was called. It is called The Aquatic Ape: A Theory of Human Evolution. It was published in 1982, which is a bit more recent than I had thought. Then she did a kind of revamping of the whole idea in 1997, The Aquatic Ape Hypothesis. And I also mentioned that um, important in her writings w was her take on the female humans, the women. And she did this book called The Descent of Woman, The Classic Study of Evolution, which if you'd asked me off the top of my head, what was her first book? I would have said The Aquatic Ape. And then I would have said that The Descent of Woman was uh, later. Well, guess what? Au contraire, The Descent of Woman was her first book, published in 1972. Mm -hmm. So The Descent of Woman is a load of stuff to do with 
primate politics, the female body, the idea that theories about human evolution have centered on male anatomy. And from that, from her writings about women, that is kind of what inspired her to explore the aquatic ape hypothesis. But she also did a bunch of bunch of other books, some of which are totally unknown to me, Falling Apart, The Rise and Decline of Urban Civilization, The Scars of Evolution, What Our Bodies Tell Us About Human Evolution. I'm familiar with that, but I don't have it. The Descent of the Child, Human Evolution from a New Perspective, which I, I am not familiar with. So, um, but yeah, but by far, the, the Aquatic Ape Theory of Human Evolution, 1982, is obviously her, you know, most famous work. And if you're interested in whatever we're talking, you know, what we're talking about, go and listen to the previous episodes. We uh, covered it there you know that's everything i got on my fu list what do you have on yours nothing <laughs> i don't believe in fu what's done no. is done darren what's done is done yeah, what's said is said yeah. just dust in the wind dude <laughs> um okay moving on we now come to part of a show called i don't know if my porcelain pekingese dog is down the other end of the office but uh news from the world of darren and john jingle here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think that was any... the jingle wasn't it let's get say again that was the jingle wasn't it well i think if i've got a more professional version lined up and ready to go if you just oh, press there's the... nothing more professional <laughs> than our jingles press button number four on the uh console in front of you sat in your, sat in your studio there um that's a massive joke uh yeah news from the world of john john uh, I painted a train. Yeah. Yeah. Gold member. <laughs> gold gold noser. Golden nose. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like it. I, I saw it this morning. Yeah. And it, it looks to me like it's got some mighty fine subtext. So uh, what's going on there, huh? Uh, I never give away my secrets. <laughs> right. It's all in the eye of the beer holder. Yeah. It's a good piece. Uh-huh. Good. Uh, is it actually a train? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, see, I can hear myself, which means the audio must be going bad. Nope. Oh, weird. Okay. We, uh, f- f- listeners, we're having phenomenal uh, issues, as as nearly always. So, uh, this, this, this is actually the, the second, the third, or fourth time we've tried <laughs> recording this podcast today. Um, yeah, uh, good, good picture. I like it a lot. Um, even though it doesn't have any... Uh, well, actually, I, I didn't see any dinosaurs in it. <laughs> Where there's some little tiny dinosaurs... That's, a good, that's a good point. <laughs> Maybe next time you look at it, there will be. <laughs> <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually dinosaur art, and you didn't know... It's actually paleo art, and you didn't know about it. Paleo art from Parallel Most Timeline. Most of my pictures do have dinosaurs in them, so... Yes, I should... Yes, okay. Hmm. Yeah, Maybe well, they're in there. Maybe... This is this is all in reference to John's most recent dinosaur piece, which is is called Lufengosaurus in the Mountains, I think. <laughs> and uh, it's, it was like, who was it who a couple of years ago posted a series of April Fool's Find the Lizard pictures of like <laughs> forest scenes with leaf litter? And after four hours of combing through every pixel, it's like, yeah, no, no lizard in the photo, it's April Fool's. Well, some people felt that way about John's uh, Lufengosaurus in the Mountains piece. But they are, they are there. It just yeah. takes a while to find them. The truth was that I didn't really want to um, ruin a good landscape with some ugly dinosaurs that you could really yeah. make out. So, um, yeah. 
<laughs> but people love dinosaurs, so I thought I'd better put some in. Well, you are, of course, albeit pretentiously, making a point. So I think the point is made. Um, I, I, I appreciate it. Um, That's good to know, from... whatever that point was. It, it's the, well, it's that like, it's that like, hey, I'm no Doug Henderson, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying I'm Doug Henderson, but... But there's landscapes. There's landscapes. I'm not saying I'm I'm better at him, but... (laughs) You're saying, dude, there's landscapes. Just you remember. Dinosaurs lived in landscapes. Uh, Yeah, it's nice. Um, the news, news from the world of Darren. Oh, yeah, though. sorry, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, what news do you have, Darren? Well, well, funny you should ask. Um, uh, uh, there's a bunch of things that are worth covering. Okay, we're still in lockdown, and we're not talking about that, as we talked about last time. Um, so, my thinking is this is the time to, you know, uh, you know capitalise on the captivity of your audience and, uh, you know, put out loads of videos, podcasts, that kind of stuff. But um, uh, both day jobs and the limitations of technology and uh, physical and mental abilities uh, limit those uh, things. So um, um, also, um, not to interrupt you too much, but podcast listening is down 30%. What, just of us or of all podcasts? All podcasts. Cause really? People, people listen to them on their commutes. Ah, oh, good point. Yeah. See, so you right. imagine people are home and they've got more time, but actually they're not, and they're in the house with lots of people. Then yeah. Oh no, we should just stop recording now. <laughs> we should make them thirty percent shorter. <laughs> well, we probably should. We'll wrap this up pretty soon. Um, yeah, my um, my my productivity in terms of producing articles and editing and stuff has gone way down because most of that was done on commutes, and now I'm actually like working nine to five in the office, whereas previously you know, I'd lose the first couple of hours in you know, a given day, just uh, traveling around. Mm. Yeah, so I, I can understand that. Um, well, anyway, where I'm going with this is I've been thinking, you know, now is the time to try and put as much stuff as you can on, on YouTube and IGTV. God, I hate Instagram so much. Um, so we've today just got the Tetrapods Audio YouTube channel working again. We were locked out of it. For, was it to do with the password? I don't know. Well, okay. So um, I've I've immediately uploaded a thing that um uh that was it's from 2018. It's a dinosaur talk called Dinosaurs and Books about Dinosaurs. So go to the Tetrapod Zoology YouTube channel and there's a there's a um uh, a, a talk. I had the um the, the the PowerPoint presentation and I had the talk, but. I'm not very, you know, I don't, I don't know how to splice those things together. So thanks very much to Mike Mills for helping me. And thanks also to Danny Rabbiotti for sending the um, the audio because she arranged that event, the ZS, the Zoological Society of London event, which I m- must have spoken about back when it, it actually happened in November 2018. Um, Dorling Kindersley asked me to produce a series of videos on dinosaurs for kids for their uh instagram channel i think they are on instagram i really hate instagram (laughs) i I am on it with a with a measly 3.6k followers or something um, pathetic pathetic it's pathetic it's like the most frustrating social media channel instagram 
Uh, literally for every 100 likes one new follower which is just why is it so slow and the stuff the limitations on how you can upload things and the size they have to be all that stuff anyway enough whining um dk books uh on the instagram on their um their igtv the instagram television channel i've done uh, I've, I've done a couple, but they've only released one so far. I've done these like little short videos where I just talk about dinosaurs to the best of my ability. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in that, that is child friendly. The, uh, the YouTube talk maybe isn't cause there's a lot of stuff about, um, reproductive, uh, behavior in animals, which I don't know. I, I think it's child friendly, but some people might not. I don't know. Um, how to be a writer. I got commissioned to do an article for Biological Sciences Review called um, Becoming a Science Writer. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> this is such a horrible thing to write about. Turns out it's actually quite fun. I did really enjoy writing it. And uh, I did my, you know, I did a little bit of research. I, I checked what other writers have said about the craft of writing and how they became science writers mm -hmm. and while every story is radically different in terms of how people got to you know whatever they regard as professionalism in the industry or you know making a living out of it or whatever every, every story is really different every story is also really the mm -hmm. same in that everyone says how do you become a science writer I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I, and there's like no one ever said anything that was of any use to me or relevance to me. And that's kind of what I ended up saying. I said, this is how, this is what happened to me. And I sort of give bits of useful, what I consider to be useful advice. And they're just things that anyone could come up with off the top of their head. How to be a good science, how to be a science writer, like no stuff, become an expert on something, be a good writer. And then once you've amassed something approaching a portfolio, Go and ask people. <laughs> and that's basically what I said. But there was a further reading section. And of course, like, wait a minute, there's things that people have written about being a science writer. So think of a science writer, Carl Zimmer, Ed Young, I don't know, Stephen Jay Gould. Let's have a look at what they've done. Sure enough, you find out. Stephen Pinker, he's done a old book on it. You know, you find out, um, yeah, there's people have written stuff about being a science writer. I mean, to be honest... Uh, whether this makes me seem like a, a you know a philistine even more than I am, I don't know. But I don't really read that much stuff written by science writers. I just not that. Don't get me wrong. I've read Stephen Jay Gould's books. I'm familiar with what Carl Zimmer's done. Um, I, I've 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 read the odd article by a whole bunch of you know science writers. But by and large, I don't know where I'm going with this. But it's like not a thing that I'm really really into. Um. So I'm like, yeah, wow, yeah. There's, things, there's things that science writers have written about being a science writer, and they mostly were of no interest or relevance to me. Or they said stuff like, in fact, Carl Zimmer says, yeah, I don't know how it happened, and I dread being asked this. So in the further reading section of the article, I said, well, there's this and there's this. But I actually said, as a sort of disclaimer, you know, for the record, I've never read any of these things, and um, no one's ever given advice. And, and like everyone else that I've, you know, um, heard from, I don't know that you will actually get advice that you should follow or is particularly useful. So. I think asking professional science writers how to become a science writer is a bit like asking how do you win the lottery? 
right? It's because yeah. there are so few compared to how many people start out wanting to do it. They've got no idea how they got to the top and actually became semi-professional. They're just or professional. They don't know. Yeah. That's the, oh, that's, uh, so you remind me of another important thing there, which is, you know, as soon as I was asked to do this article, I was like, wait a minute, you know that like this is a career that I wouldn't recommend anybody do because um, there's no money in it. The only way you can, the only way you'll be able to do it is basically if you prepare to live off sawdust in a shack, or live with someone who's got money, or someone you know someone who's prepared to support you. Um, and even if you get to the top of the game, as it were, <laughs> then, even then you don't really feel like a winner. Like yay, finally my solid gold house. It's like yes, now I'm on. Now I'm on 10k a year. <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> oh, I hope I don't lose it to one of these up-and-coming new science writers. <laughs> yeah, take, take them out. Thin their number, thin their ranks. It's very similar so, to being asked how to become a paleo artist. And my um, answer is always, well, don't. You can't. There's no such thing. You know, a professional paleo artist. You, you can't. There's no. Yeah. It's not really a thing. It's not a thing you can do in the world. Think yes. of something else you can do and do it in your spare time. Yeah. So, to, I mean, to those curious about me, I, I, obviously, I do earn money from science writing, um, but it's not my primary source of income. My primary source of income is consultancy for assorted companies, media companies, natural history companies, um, publishers, Dorling Kindersley, Osborne, and so on. That's actually how I survive. Not through the, the 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 small amount of money I make from um, yeah from writing, um, and, and I say all that in the article. I'll, t- I'll maybe talk more about it when it when it's out. But uh, I thought it was an interesting thing to consider, and um, uh, yeah, I do I do quite like the whole you know sort of reflective thing where it's like you get to that certain point in a career and it's like what have I actually learned? Because before you know it, you know that's it. You've you've learned you've learned enough. To be able to tell other people, younger people, <laughs> why they shouldn't follow you. <laughs> but uh, I do, I do say, I do say that it's very rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding things there is: writing a book, publishing a book, seeing it on the shelf. It's one of the <laughs> finest experiences a person can have. And if you believe that, a load of old, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's kind of true. Kind of true. Uh-huh. Like your books are like your. Your baby, ba- oh, I can't even say it. Babies made out of. I was going to say paper babies, but I couldn't say it. Paper babies, paper babies, <laughs> paper babies. <laughs> yeah, your flesh and blood babies. <laughs> yeah, mine aren't babies no more. For the record, William Nash is eighteen years old. He's like a man, and Emma is eleven. And then I've got the the babies made of paper. Tetrapodology, book one, dinosaurs the other way, and so on and so forth. Evolution in minutes, hunting monsters. Some of them are even older, aren't they? Um, dinosaurs the other way is a little bit older than Will. It's published in two thousand one. It's a grown up too. It's an adult, and I've only got two copies: one tattered, annotated one, and one pristine, virgin copy. Because I've been trying to acquire. I've, 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 I'm always talking about this on Twitter and stuff. I'm always trying to get copies of it so i can sell them <laughs> because when i when it was new dinosaurs of the isle of wight yeah it's 18 pounds which for a 433 page book with a lot of content is a bargain 
But um, it's been out of print for a long time. It's published by the PALAS, the Paleontological Association, and it's, um, I believe, still is by far their best-selling of this series, Field Guide to Fossils. Um, it's published as like a scientific work, so no money, not one penny, went to the authors, Dave, my, my former PhD supervisor, Dave Martin and myself, which uh, as an idiot, you know, young PhD student, I thought was fine uh, today. Because I was asked about I was asked about doing another edition. I was like, well, yeah, but I'll need to be paid. And it's like, well, no, sorry. Well, that's that then. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so so no money for it. It's it sold well. It's sold out. And if you want it today, go and find secondhand copies online. They are from i think 70 80 pounds to a couple of hundred pounds at the moment and, they've got three on amazon for like 75 pounds yeah and who would uh, who would pay that what sort of person pays 75 pounds for a book That's my my limit for books is like less than 40 pounds i never never will pay that much for a book. <laughs> yeah but as we discussed you know you don't have any money even Imagine if, I, if you were you, but you just had like lots of money. Even then, no, you'd go, you'd go, because you just lose track of what seventy-five pounds is. You'd just go, yeah, right. Well, how much money do you have to have before you're at that point? Just to be a millionaire, a billionaire. Uh, <laughs> I think you just need a decent amount of disposable income and nothing better to spend it on. So, say you've got a house, you sort of live the life you want to live. You're not worrying about kids or spouses. Maybe they're already taken care of. And then you've just got this money coming in. What are you going to spend it on? Yeah. <laughs> I've considered this thing because obviously I look at a lot of expensive books and also animal figures that I'm interested in, you know, um, giant, like, giant dinosaur models from China and stuff. And it's like, I always think, even if I did have sufficient money to be able to afford them, I couldn't bring myself to do it because I'm like, I do not think it's morally right to spend £40 on a toy, £80 on a book. It's not right. <laughs> class, class warfare. <laughs> Green Shield stamp books. But, <laughs> I mean, you can go out and spend that much in an evening. Book will yeah. give you more entertainment than that. I don't know. Well, depending, <laughs> depending on the book, but it could. Don't know about that. It could. <laughs> so you know, mm -hmm. eighty pounds okay. would be a pretty good night, I guess. But mm, it's not difficult to spend eighty pounds, is it? I mean, no, you know, it isn't. A no. greedy, a greedy takeaway is eighty pounds. It's stupid enough. And if it's four of you, you're, you're not four people. We're four people. It's oh yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting up, we're getting up there. Yes. Not, yeah. not 80, no, 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 but yeah, definitely, no. I can see how you get to 80 70, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so, uh, so there you go, that's how to be a writer. No, um, um, on the subject of books, also news and word of Darren and John, allegedly, um, a book, another, uh, Dorling, talking about Dorling Kindersley again, a book that I was consultant on. It was authored by my good friend and colleague, Chris Barker. Super Dinosaur, it's called, is um, is already on sale, available via pre-order. I hate that term. And <laughs> it's technically published in the summer. It's got a baryonyx on the cover. And it's another one of these Dorling Kindersley books where, compared to the Dorling Kindersley books of like 15 years ago, uh, you will notice that uh, the artwork 
is a substantial step in the right direction. It's mostly mm-hmm. by a guy called James Cuther who does these CG dinosaurs that are pretty good, and they're they're everywhere because he's a he has stocked <laughs> uh, science photo library and other image libraries with his pictures. Uh, what's next on the agenda? <clears throat> news from the world of news. Jingle for this. <laughs> yep. News from the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. Um, three things. News yeah. from the world of news. Now, John, what would you say would be the most exciting kind of animal that someone could discover in a country like Iran today in our modern age? They're wandering around, let's say it's 2008, they see an animal on a wall, and oh, I don't recognize that, I'll go catch it. And then, takes a little while, science takes ages, do some science, oh my god, it's amazing. What do you reckon it is? It's a mouse, isn't it? Mm, I was hoping you were going to say tape here. Um, (laughs) It's a reptile. Oh, a gecko. It's a gecko. It's not a gecko. Mm. But not a bad guess. It's because it's actually slightly more surprising than a gecko. Because I don't know how many new geckos have had every year, but it's quite a few. It's in the tens. It is a snake. So uh, let me just check, get my notes. Um, published in uh, Peer J uh, about a week ago. Mardi Raja Biza Day, which I'm no doubt pronouncing incorrectly. Roger Beza Day and colleagues, including the famous R. Alexander Pyron, they we're we're no doubt stealing a story here from those bastards of Squamates, the Squamates <laughs> podcasts. So, haha, screw you. Guys. <laughs> no, they're our friends, uh, and they like us. But uh, but so sorry if we're stealing your story. But um, I thought this was pretty cool. Additions to the phylogeny of Calub- Calubrian snakes in South, or colubrine snakes, whatever, in southwestern Asia with description of a new genus and species. So uh, I've forgotten the exact story, but it's basically, you know, a researcher is walking through the countryside in uh, Iran uh, in 2008. Uh, oh, it's two people on the ship, of course. Uh, and, um, yeah, they, they see this snake, like, what the hell is that? Don't recognize it. Um, turns out to be, you know, morphologically novel. It's a colubrine snake, so it's in that gargantuan group of snakes that contains, oh my god, it's, oh, it's one thousand, it's over one thousand nine hundred species. Uh, well, that's colubrids as a whole in their current uh, restricted version. But um, yeah, it's somewhere in there. They're not quite entirely sure where where it uh, pans out. And um, morphologically unusual because it's a, a, you know not particularly big, but a, a slender snake with a fairly long snout, big eyes. It's got a toothless pterygoid bone, uh, which is unusual. Um, it's got... Uh, but it's got a bunch of other like things that make it unusual relative to you know those kinds of snakes. And it's blue. And uh, it's not blue. It well, it's bluish, I guess. Actually, yeah, it's blue. I, yeah, my color vision's not very good. That's kind of blue, isn't it? It yeah, is it's blue. called okay. It's called Persiophis fahimi. Um, obviously, that means you know, snake from Persia. Uh, and if you know any people from Iran, they do like to say they're Persian rather than Iranian uh, or Iranian. Um, <laughs> And um, I do know people from Iran. My, my next-door neighbours uh, were from Iran. 
At one point, we had people from Iraq on one side and Iran on the other side. Multi, multi nation, multi uh, national uh, neighborhood I live in. Um, yeah, it's a Perseophis fahimi, uh, so new snake. Um, now, you might be saying, okay, who cares? Uh, like, there's a lot of new species of snakes named every year. You know, maybe not as many as there are geckos, but there's there's a lot. We're in a we're in an age of, um, you know, like exponential increase in numbers of species. Um, there's not only, on the one hand, you know, when you talk about this sort of thing, and I'm sure we've covered it on the podcast before, you do have people saying, ah, oh, yeah, but it's all taxonomic subjectivity and, you know, splitting of splitting of splits. And, you know, this subpopulation of that subspecies is now regarded as a species. It's like, well, yeah, there's that kind of thing going on. <laughs> there are people naming, you know, recognizing genetic and morphological diversity as an excuse to name new species but there's all you know every single time there are these kinds of complaints well there also are people actually discovering new stuff and there's obviously parts of the world where people are documenting lots of new snakes and other animals um this being you know southwestern asia is not an area where there's you know lots of new species coming from so far as i'm aware so that's why i thought it was quite surprising mm. it's like that that kind of section Eurasia, the you know near the borders of Europe, it always seems surprising that you might get a new species from there. But um, so interesting thing, right? Now there's no shame in not knowing the answers to this, and, and I don't expect you to. But do you know how many species of living birds there are? I thought there were about four thousand something, five hundred something that, like that. That is that's decades out of date. It's a is. It's about 10,000. It's about 10,000 <laughs> living bird species. And if, if many of the more distinctive, air quotes, subspecies turn out to be phylogenetic species, as of course is the trend, then the actual number is twice that. So there's about 10,000 living species of birds, but it could be 20,000. But let's go with 10K, right? So how many species of snakes do you think there are? Two thousand species of snake. You're not a million miles away, but you're not right. It's about double that. It's about three thousand seven hundred at the moment. So, so we're using birds here as our ballpark only because species limits and you know rate of discovery is supposed. People are supposed to be on top of that for birds. Mm -hmm. For mammals, it's round about. Uh, it's between six and seven thousand. I actually can't remember. I think it's about seven thousand. I'm hoping I'm not wrong there, but whatever. Uh, so there's about 3.7 thousand snakes. Now, snakes are a subgroup of lizards. Excluding snakes, how many lizards do you reckon there are? Yeah, I'm going to go with 4,000 again. Also wrong. It's, <laughs> it's more like 6,600 at the moment. So 6.6. And there's also another approximately 200 Amphisbanians, which again, technically are a subgroup of lizards. They are a group of lizards. They're, they're deeply nested within lizards. They're close to lacerted lizards, they're all lizards, green lizards, etc. Uh, so if we've got 3.7 plus 6.6, .6, that is, oh, no, I did the maths on this and now I can't, now I've forgotten it. That's 10.4, I think. It's over to whatever, it's over 10,000. <laughs> yeah. So there's, so, so, just squamates 
lizards, snakes, and amphisbanians, bearing in mind that snakes and amphisbanians are technically subgroups of lizards, there are over 10,000 squamates. And even that is, okay, you know I just what I just said about the subspecies? Well, you've got the same deal there with snakes and lizards, because in lizards not including snakes, there's over 2,000 subspecies that probably warrant recognition as um, distinct, uh, air quotes, species. We are not covering the whole what the hell is a species thing. We've done that too many times before. So, um, so yeah. So if we stick with the 10,000 birds, 10,000-ish birds, there's over 10,000 snakes, lizards, amphisbanians, and... Um, but see, this is why I, you know, you don't want to do the species thing again. I understand that. But I think the problem with this is we don't know how comparable these species are. Um, not to each other, but say, do people working on birds have a different feeling for species than people working on reptiles and things like yep. that, right? So we need some sort of quantification about what we're talking about here. And species don't cut it. And we don't have it. Yeah. There is, and there is. So the, the answer is too hard a term, but we do have consideration of this problem because there is what's called the frog's eye view versus the bird's eye view, which is that within birds, uh, it has been what's – what's a version for saying that something's been quantified but, but only in the most arm-wavy fashion possible? <laughs> it's, been, it's been soft quantified mm-hmm. as let's say there's a 2% difference – between two bird populations, their species, mm-hmm. right? But if there's a 30% difference between frogs, and it would also apply to lizards and snakes, they're still in the same species because it's like that's yep. just a different morph or different subspecies. So plus, of course, the uh, air quotes species of frogs, snakes, lizards are generally assumed to be or sometimes shown to be geologically much older than um, than bird species, which are mostly supposed to be very young. So what you regard as a species of frog or snake or lizard is actually like a way more diverse unit than what you regard as a bird species. Um, you could say the same for mammals because the tiniest differences between mammal populations are regarded as species-level splits. So so where, where I think that goes is that there's – if if we're depending on which standard we're using and you know obviously we don't agree on which standard we are using but if we're using like the bird species level then there's actually way more frogs salamanders lizards snakes yeah rodents than there are birds because of course birds it's mostly like really really obvious stuff to us turns out they look different and they sound different whereas frogs can be separate for 30 million years and still look identical to us <laughs> it just turns out the genetics oh my god they're totally different <clears throat> yeah um yeah and there's always been a bias in towards studying mammals and birds um it's what people yeah. are interested in so you get more attuned to differences um so yeah <laughs> this is why i do actually think that this is in some ways important that we do need some sort of the species debate is kind of a bit of a distraction in a way Maybe we'll never have a good definition of species and what that means. I mean, it seems unlikely. We've been banging our head on it for, like, hundreds of years now. Um, uh, some sort of other way of quantifying diversity um, would be great. 
uh-huh. in groups. Of course, you know, you could do a very like there's an obvious one that's just sitting there, which is which can is readily quantifiable, which is genetics. Yes. Um, but that I the re, I I think that would be good in a way in that it's readily quantifiable. We we can just do it. But I don't think it really captures what we want to capture because some of these things, like two genetically pretty similar animals, might actually be morphologically a bit different and ecologically quite different. Um, I think you've also... Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. It's, you've also got the illusion of some kind of, like, um, you know, concrete decision with genetics. Like, oh, they're different. They're, they're different genetically in this, this way. Well, it's like, yeah, but that actually when you drill down into it that relates to like specific genes or specific sections of the you know mm. specific sections of the genome which aren't again aren't a directly comparable thing yeah i mean you might be one... looking at junk dna for example someone's got a bunch of junk, different junk dna but basically everything that codes for anything is the same um i mean that's just a silly example but yeah so genetics can sort of lead you to thinking yeah, it's a clue, I think, but it's not actually what we want to get at with a lot yep. of diversity measures, which I think are in some ways important for conservation, right? I think that's the pressing need for diversity measures amongst uh, living things is to know what to conserve because we're really at a fairly crucial juncture right now where we're having to choose, make some pretty hard decisions about what can, what can reasonably be done and uh, to have no... Quantification on any of this is a bit unfortunate. So you've led us into the old species thing yet again. Well, actually, yeah, but it wasn't, as I'm saying, a species I'm not actually all that interested in. I just want some sort of quantification of phylogenetic or genetic or ecological diversity. Not, yeah. yeah, I don't really well. care what level that happens at. In fact, there are probably too many species. Like that sort of level is probably too fine grained. We can't operate. Too on many species. I, n- I never really understand that argument. It's a very common. That one. is not what I was. That's not what I was arguing. I was so arguing. I so I was arguing. We, well, there's absolutely no way we can care about species level because there's <laughs> too. Uh, in terms of conser- conservation, because there are too many of them, we're going to lose so many of them that perhaps that's just not the way to think about it. You know, we're not going to be talking about saving this particular species of frog. <laughs> We might, but it's not, you know, it's not... We'd be talking more about saving whole clades, you know? Um, What might have been termed in the olden days families, I guess. Well, you know, okay, this this is another tangent and we mustn't go down this tangent hole. (laughs) But but there's also the argument that, uh, which I've heard from ecologists and conservation biologists, which is that phylogenetics is one big cheaty time wasting time sapper mm-hmm. because we're all follow we're, we're all you know so many biologists are wrapped up and I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Obviously, you know I think phylogeny, the history of life, is something we we want to get to grips with and does have real world um, you know value. I mean, you look at for example people like you know the current example people mapping the genetics of disease and, and stuff you know that's that's cru- that's crucial work with real world implications but when we think about things like conservation and diversity in terms of lineages it's like well surely given that you know you're on the ground in a forest or whatever it doesn't really matter that your species here is related to that population there or that population on the other continent. It's like, what's its ecological interaction and how valuable is preserving the ecology? And yep. in that case, you should talk about preserving um, chunks of connected species in a web, in a food web, 
which I mean, I don't want to say that to make it sound like that's what people aren't doing because obviously they are doing they are, they are trying to save chunks of habitat, but um yeah, but yeah. that's sort of the conversation we should be having rather than sort of the taxonomic conversation about what bits of our taxonomy we keep alive. We should be talking about which ecologies we um try yeah. to save. Yeah. Although, although another complication, this also relates to what's called extinction management, which is where people specifically look at those lineages of the tree. We covered this a long time ago, uh, where if there's like a lineage that's 100 million years old and it's got one species and lineage that's a million years old and it's got 100 species, most of us would make the argument that we should be putting effort into saving the former the long, the old lineage, which preserves a unique combination of characters, genetic and anatomical, etc., and is at low diversity. Whereas we might not need all two thousand perula warblers or um, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Compared yeah. to losing monotremes, for example. Yeah, yeah which that was the example you used last yeah. time. Okay, let's let's move on because yeah, good stuff. Um, when all of these podcasts are transcribed, which is a project that's actively undergoing activity then um <laughs> yes then all this stuff will be easily searched and and our wisdom will stand for the ages <laughs> I'm just really yeah. sure this is a good idea <laughs> so so far you know i've released the transcript for episode one on uh, tetzu.com and i've also got the transcript for episode two somewhere and uh yeah pe- people are working on a couple of others but um if you're interested in trans- transcribing a podcast, which these days is easier than it ever was because there's, you know, there's software that just um, transcribes stuff, then, um, yeah, let us know because we do not want duplication of effort. Um, so, sorry, we lost a bit of time there, but I wanted to, I've been trying to find the second thing I wanted to talk about and I can't. I, I kept the tab open and I've closed it and now I can't find the paper, nor can I find. And I'm just going to have one last try and find the paper while I'm talking. It was a really cool paper about um, bat predation on birds. So um, it was documented like early 2000s that a couple of uh, relatively large Vesper bats of Europe and North America were predators of nocturnally migrating passerine birds so like in western europe the greater noctual uh is doc is now documented as a predator of like warblers and robins and stuff like that we already know that in the australasian and asian tropics there are the um uh, megadermated bats uh, and, and a couple of other groups that, you know, reg- regularly eat birds. There's a couple of, like, big South American bats, like the great spectral bat, uh, what used to be called the false vampire, Vampirum spectrum. We know that regularly eats birds. Um, but this new study, which I cannot flipping find right now. We'll have to put it in the, 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 the notes or something when I do find it. Um, it's about... Um, n- night vision cameras in, I think, the Amazon... And um, the authors of this study documented like four or five species of bats that I think all belong to the philostomid bat. That's the New World leaf nose bats, uh, which you know, there's a, a huge diversity within that group. There's, there's loads of pollen eaters and nectar eaters, as well as like omnivores and fruit eaters and predators. And um, I wrote a whole series about them at Tetzu 
possibly possibly the current version of tetzu and um they document yeah like four or five species of philostomids um like at night landing on bird nests really really quickly like you know less than a second they land on the bird nest they grab eggs or baby birds and fly off with them and it happened so quickly that they weren't always able to identify the species of bats that were doing it they were able to tell that like of the four or five doing it one or two of them were (laughs) like frugivorous or herbivorous bats (laughs) but it's like they were landing on birds nest and grabbing eggs I don't know if these herbivorous or frugivorous ones were grabbing baby birds, but they were definitely grabbing eggs. And mm. it was like, wow, nobody the predicted The best fruit this. of all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what? These bats are nest raiding. And they recorded it enough times in a short, you know, period of like, you know, recording the data mm. that um, it would appear to be like a regular sort of mainstream occurrence. So it's mm. like... Yeah, another instance of um, uh, bats predating on birds. So it's quite funny. In the bat research community, you get every time there's like a story about bats killing birds. They're like, yeah, take that, you feathered bastards. But, uh, <laughs> because cause most stories, because bats are killed, like loads of kinds of bats are, are eaten by birds. Because a bird doesn't have to like be anything apart from a bird and it can kill a bat. Like, you know, gulls eat bats a lot. Ducks eat bats, hawks, owls, they eat loads of bats, crows eat bats. But to be a bird killing bat, you have to be like a, you know, something special. You have to be exceptionally large and have exceptionally robust dentition and so on. And for them to find that these like frugivorous or herbivorous yeah, versions. Or as it turns out, not, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, okay. Caveat the R8, the R8, little tiny, you know, tiny nestlings of, I don't know. I think. The, the list of bird species were like small, obscure passerines. They weren't hummingbirds, but they were, you know, the small, like wrens and things like that. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And I'm super disappointed that I don't have the paper uh, in front of me now because I did have when I prepared. It takes hours to prepare for these podcasts. <laughs> um, yeah, I did make sure I had it open with me. So uh, pretty cool, huh? Yep, that is cool. Uh, yeah. I've got in, in my textbook, which is still in preparation and probably will be for the rest of my days, um, the, the bat section is pretty hefty, as you'd expect. There's a lot of fossil bats. And um, so I was just thinking about Don Prothero's book on bats, uh, on mammals, two pages on bats. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did, a whole, I did a whole load of pictures of like bats killing birds because like, a lot of the fossil ones are you know pretty cool, hefty predators. And some of the best... Uh, bird fossil sites in the Cenozoic record, like Riversley in Queensland, Australia. Uh, all of the, but nearly all of the birds there are bits and pieces left over from bat predation. So ghost bats, which are still extant in Australia, ghost bats were like uh, going out and grabbing, you know, kingfishers and whatever you know loads of loads of other birds and taking them back to caves and dropping their gnawed bones for them to be incorporated into the fossil record so um yeah bats have uh, got some input into the bird fossil record the center bird fossil record um third thing and let's be real brief on this because no doubt everyone is sick of it already is this this another spinosaurus paper oh yawn more on spinosaurus 
You know, yeah. everyone hates dinosaurs. They hate it when they talk yeah. about dinosaurs. So I just hate the whole thing. Yeah, goddamn dinosaurs. So, yeah, now I'm not going to say too much about this. And partly that's because I kind of feel that almost everything interesting has been said about it already. Because, like, the world goes nuts. There's you know, a lot of popular. Spinosaurus is a very popular dinosaur, in part because it's really cool, in part because it's really big, in part because it's like, you know, you know honestly enigmatic um so you get all these opinions on social media you know very worthy opinions as well as completely worthless ones and you also get like you know blog articles and you know sort of semi-technical responses um so part of me feels that like the debate has been covered very well already but i also don't want to talk about it because it's directly relevant to stuff that myself and colleagues are working on right now so um i'll tell you when we finish recording but um, yeah. So for the one listener, the one of our what are we on ten point nine million listeners at the moment, I think. For the one of those listeners who um hasn't heard, uh, Niza Ibrahim and colleagues have just published in Nature this week the the a really like I don't say complete, but it's like substantially well represented Spinosaurus tail, which definitely comes from like one animal. It's not a composite, no way. And it shows that this dinosaur does have really tall, slender uh, neural spines pointing upwards from the tail, which look make it look like it had a deep, laterally compressed tail, which of course they interpret as uh, evidence for you know their aquatic model. It's a, it's a sculling tail, according mm. to them. And they did a little bit of modelling with... Um, some like you know biomechanics biomechanic some had an android on the team now they, they had some biomechanicists including a very respected noted fish uh like you know swimming dynamics expert and um yeah they made like a little robot of a spinosaurus tail and tested it um yeah so that's all that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Why yeah. did we bother saying anything then? You've got to say a bit more than that. Otherwise, it's just not even worth putting in the podcast, is it? Fine, edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I don't know. I mean, like, I haven't made up my mind yet, nor is the work that myself and colleagues involved in finished. But no, I really can't say anymore. But yeah, okay. What well, it's cool. It's really interesting. It you know, I'm absolutely sure that this does go to Spinosaurus aegyptiacus. I think a lot of the stuff that's been labelled Spinosaurus is not from Spinosaurus. It's from this other animal, Sigillomassosaurus. Yeah. Which which brought him and colleagues. Now they've just published like a couple of weeks back a gigantic review of uh, all of the vertebrate fossils from the Chemchem in Morocco, and they. Uh, they say there that the whole idea about there being two spinosaurids in North Africa at this time is bogus. But they don't really honestly restate what um, Evers et al. said in, in the argument. So there's this really long paper by so Yosha Evers and colleagues where they said that the morphological differences in the spinosaurus material show that a bunch of the things referred to Spinosaurus aegyptiacus by Ibrahim et al. actually belong to this other taxon, Sigil Massosaurus brevicollis. And if you've now got two 
spinosaurine spinosaurids in north africa well if you do something like if you find like an isolated you name it whatever bit of an animal and it doesn't overlap with the holotypes for either of those things then how can and there's that's a bit this is a bit messy because because ibrahim Mattel designated a spinosaurus specimen as a neotype um okay yeah sorry but i just don't think yeah all right at this point I don't think any of that really matters in terms of what people are really interested in. What people are really interested in, is there a large theropod dinosaur that is substantially aquatic, right? Now, what, whether this one belongs to Spinosaurus or the other one, which I've already forgotten the name of, is not important because it belongs to one of them. <laughs> and does this lend substantial credence to the, fact, to the idea that there is a aquatic large theropod dinosaur and i mean this is a pretty weird tale uh i don't know there there are things about it which look pretty good for being aquatic from the side this looks like a cocktail right in many ways i do think ish that, ish but there are uh, there are differences um but still i think this is this there is are, this is certainly interesting in that respect. Yeah, uh, I don't, as I say, I'm not. I just think that the whole taxonomic argument about one or two was interesting when we were talking about whether they legs were particularly short and things like this, right? Were the, but I don't think that this is particularly interesting anymore. Back up a little bit there. Yeah. You'll recall that I bought that. I only bought that into my little yammering discussion there because I was saying that we can be fairly confident that this does belong to Spinosaurus Egyptiarchus. Yeah. Okay. And, I was, and I was saying that there is this argument that not all the material belongs to the same taxon. That's the, only, mm. that's, that's the context in which I was mentioning it. As yeah. in, like, I'm happy to see this go to the dorsal sail-bearing, crocodile-headed, short-legged thing that we call Spinosaurus Egyptiarchus. Um, their take immediately that it's... I mean, okay, so... Like there's some issues with the musculature they've they've reconstructed. Is this a swimming tail? Well, it kind of looks like it could be. Whether you do or don't account, like come up with a different muscular reconstruction, because it's a weird looking tail compared to that of like most other swimmers. It's an even weirder tail compared to non-swimmers. Well, <laughs> now you see that's where I don't quite agree. Okay. And, that's kind of where I don't want to go. That's the next thing I don't want to talk about. Yeah. But basically, okay, like, the point has been made already by people that know living reptiles quite well. There are already a bunch of living reptiles with sail tails that use their – they've got super long, slender, rod-like neural spines on the tail which support fat, um, sails which function primarily in display. Well, we already think that the giant dorsal sail of Spinosaurus, most rational people, with a you know, handful of exceptions, most rational people accept that the sail isn't a aquatic specialization. It's like, it, you, know, you might remember Brian Forge talking about, oh, look, it's got a sail. They've had previous to swimming like a sailfish. Like, yeah, right. Um, the sail is probably nothing to do with the aquatic lifestyle. So if you found a sail-like structure on the tail, are you sure that that's also linked to a aquatic lifestyle are you sure that's not linked to a display function as it is in living reptiles that have got um similar tail sails yeah 
Okay. I, I, don't, I don't know, and I'm not saying... No, no, I'm no, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to know, and I'm not saying you have to give away your research in prep. In fact, maybe it's better you don't say anything, because you don't want to. But what I will say is, okay, but let's just step back a second here. We've got a really, really unusual theropod here, right? Yeah, you can... Uh, no one's sure about anything, but I do think this this pushes it closer to the aquatic hypothesis. Mm. I, I just think that this is... Yes, it could just coincidentally have a really unusual tail too. It could be part of the display thing. Sure, it could be, yeah. I just don't think that that's looking like the strongest and best argument I would make. It could be true. And I want to see how the uh, biomechanics really shake out. And I should say I haven't read this paper because I haven't... I should ask someone for it because I don't have it. Oh, I'll send it to you. Yeah. The problem, yeah, it hasn't been shared as much as these papers usually are because the da- the downloaded version with the supplementary info was 15 meg. It's not like a, you know, yeah, difficult it's, not, it's not like a 200 kilobyte one yeah. piece of paper. It's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a thing that hasn't been shared not as much. It's necessarily straightforward. But yeah, I think that, I think that this is uh, interesting and does push it in that direction. Um, I also wonder, and you don't have to say anything about this, but I think that this is worth mentioning, and I will say it from my perspective, because I don't have any special insight, whereas you might. There's something weird going on with all these fossils. Now, what I mean by weird is not that they're fake or that um, necessarily even that they're composites or anything like that, right? But, (laughs) okay, so... Something really weird and turns up. The initial story we got uh, that this is Spinosaurus, this is all Spinosaurus, but then later, well, maybe it's all a composite, maybe it wasn't even unusually proportioned for a theropod, right? Or that unusually proportioned. And then suddenly we have, well, suddenly. Then we have this tail, which pushes it back into that idea. And I've got to wonder personally whether there's a whole bunch of material out there which isn't in the literature and that... Some people are <laughs> making arguments, trying to make arguments based on things we can talk about when actually they know things from things we can't talk about. Um, and this is what I wonder is going on with Spinosaurus and similar theropods from uh, that they actually know things that aren't in the literature, right? Um, and that perhaps... The argument for a aquatic Spinosaurus has historically in the literature been a little bit weak, but actually if you knew of all the specimens, it might actually be stronger. And that's why they're making these arguments relatively forcefully. Um, that's what I wonder. You don't have to say anything, but there you go. Okay, should we move on? Okay, let's move on to the main event. Um, yeah, um, the main event. There are not too many dinosaurs. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, one, one, one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'm compiling today the fifth part in that uh, series. There are not too many, there are not too many damn dinosaurs. I can't even remember the title. Uh, stop saying that there are too many sauropod dinosaurs. So, um, do you want to do you want to lead on this, or shall I launch into it? I talk too much. Um, no, you should lead on this. 
Um, okay, because okay, so actually I haven't read the people saying there are too many. Okay, um, so... This is not something I'm all that familiar with, to be honest. I've got to say, this is an idea that I have been familiar with for a long time, and I think it initially was inspired back in the 80s by uh, comments about the number of Iguanodontian species in the uh, early Cretaceous of Europe. I remember people, and I'm not mentioning any names, but you know, David Norman comes to mind, where people said, oh, you know, we don't think it would be likely that there would be like more than two species of you know, Iguanodon-type dinosaurs in Western Europe at that time. And I remember thinking, like, that's some bullshit right there, because you know you only have to go back to the to the early Holocene or you know the Pleistocene, and a place like you know continental North America, Western Europe, tropical Africa, they've got like you know two, three, four, five multi-ton herbivores, giant sloths, and a mastodon, and a mammoth, and another kind of proboscidean, a couple of big rhinos, bison. You know, uh, there's, there's loads of faunas throughout the Cenozoic where you've got lots of big animals living alongside one another. When you look at the kind of environments you're talking about, the sizes, the time span you're talking about, you're talking about not animals that are living in the same decade, decade as each other, but animals that are sometimes separated by tens of thousands of years, if not millions of years. It's like most of the... The, 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 the caveat to all this is, of course, there has to be a carrying capacity for any section of time, geographical area, environment where there has to be a carrying capacity but the assumption that well we can't have more than three species it's like well hold on who says you can't have more than three why can't you have four why can't you have five are you sure where exactly is the cutoff when it comes to this is this is brings it relevant to this this current series of tetsu when it comes to the morrison formation the late jurassic kimridge and, and Tithonia at the end of the jurassic you've got 30 at least there's going to be more. There's people working on naming more. There's at least 30 sauropod species, not genera, species for the Morrison formation. Um, you have a couple of people, and the person who I'm thinking of in particular is Don Prothero because of arguments he's made in online articles and in his and in his recent book, The Story of the Dinosaurs and 25 Discoveries. I was a reviewer for that book. Um, Prothero says that he says – um, when people are naming new sauropods from the Morrison, well, surely this just isn't just isn't possible. Surely there's just too many animals for this section of time. And I'm like, I'm like, no, you're like, there's a bunch of assumptions you've made there. The evidence is fundamentally opposed to your assumptions, and uh, I'm afraid he's just flat out flat out wrong on this and what i don't want i don't want to be mean to don prother I, I, I like him he's you know we've worked together and stuff but um he he made this argument initially in an online article and i responded to him at length in a in an email and he said thanks very much okay i'm wrong um then he made it again in the manuscript for his book and i was a reviewer for the book and i said the same thing i said no you you can't just say i don't like there being so many sauropods because you haven't taken account of this and this and this and this and he didn't incorporate those changes into the into the book so that the book has got his too many damn dinosaurs take so i thought if you've been given like i said i don't want to be mean about it but if you've been given the chance twice to kind of like correct your argument when you've been slapped down is too harm a term, but when you've been responded to twice and you still haven't, uh, I, basically I think like it's fair for me to actually like, you know, 
air quotes, attack this idea and go to town on it because th- there's a lot of interesting things to say about the shape of Mesozoic ecosystems and the diversity of dinosaurs. But it's like, no, this argument, which is being promoted and is, you know, findable for people that are interested, um, this idea does need sufficient response. So he was inspired by the 2015 resurrection of Brontosaurus by Chop et al. And he said... That, that was that was what inspired him to say too many dinosaurs, which was a really weird argument because that's that was a subject not, not entirely subjective. We did actually cover this on the podcast before that that's a that's a like taxonomic bookkeeping decision where you draw the lines between genera because even if it doesn't matter if we use brontosaurus or apatosaurus it doesn't matter if the brontosaurus species get absorbed into apatosaurus again there's still the same number of species there's still the same number of taxonomic units so sorry his, his argument, sorry not ta- ta- what we're talking about here just to be clear i think what we're talking about in this argument is reproductively isolated populations because that's what's important. That's important. The, that's what's important to the argument. Genera, or even species, depending on how you define it, aren't particularly important. What we're talking about is reproductively isolated populations. So, because that's where the argument stems from, right? That there, we can't have this many reproductively isolated populations in a certain area. So that, yeah. Sorry. So just to yes. clarify, that's what we're talking about. It doesn't matter whether it's we call them Brontosaurus or. Apatosaurus. We're still yeah. saying these are reproductively isolated populations, and well, and of course, the, one of the oh God, there's so many tangents and caveats to this subject. But one of them is that we don't even know that we're talking about reproductively isolated <laughs> units. We're we're often talking about individual specimens. Now, I would say, and I do say in this series of articles, that we've got good reasons for thinking that our specimens, which we recognise as taxa based on our understanding of what science is and how it works, based on our, under, our interpretation of the data right now, we have to say that those, speci- those, those specimens, those units, you know, believed to correspond to you know, populations, we have to accept that that is, a, that is a reproductive unit. That is a thing that we're going to call a species. And if you're going to say that, oh, surely there's just too many and we need to shrink them down a little bit and regard them as, you know, sexes or growth stages of the same, of, of some lower number, well, then immediately, like, you know, again, no disrespect intended to Don Prothero, but you're immediately like dissing the people that have done really good, hard, detailed work on these animals, just like disregarding that stuff without actually being aware of what it is that's made the units, the specimens, the taxa, you know, worthy of distinction as species uh, or genera. So, so that's that's kind of like the the boring, like nitty gritty kind of you know bedrock to the argument is like whose expertise are you expecting? Uh, are you um, you know following on where the boundaries are between species and genera? You know, like, is taxonomy relevant to actual diversity? Um, you know, who are the experts here? What what's the anatomical basis for regarding these things as species or genera? That, that's that's the boring stuff. But there's a load of like bigger picture things, which is you know I've just started to write about in the series, and there's still more to come. And that is like, who says that having 30 species in the Morrison is a problem, given that the Morrison is at least seven million years and probably more covers. Oh dear, I have forgotten the. 
I just cannot remember numbers. It's like in geographic area, it's vast. It is, oh God, is it over a million square kilometers? But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really, yeah, be something like that, but it doesn't really matter all that much right it's large it's a it's a it's huge, huge it's a huge portion of the western united states right yeah and you don't find all of these species together they're subdivided into like little segments of the morrison obviously you don't have more than like you don't have like prothero talks about it being problematic that there might be seven or eight species living alongside one another but you don't get that most places where you have sauropods in the morrison you have one or two and it's exceptional to have three or four or five like in the same general area. And if you've got three, four or five, they're kind of like doing different things. You know, Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus like, are found alongside Catadocus and Diplodocus and whatnot. But they're, not, they're clearly not doing the same thing. And they're certainly not doing the same thing as Camarasaurus or, you know, Brachiosaurus or Haplocanthosaurus or uh, whatever. So um, th- this idea that you've got some problem with niche partitioning or too many animals crowded into the same place is is not correct. The um, the argument that, that the, the article that I'm finishing now is devoted to is um, the productivity of the actual environments because mm. um and and the populations of the dinosaurs because if you've got like okay so over this like approximately seven million years of time corresponding to the morrison formation you've got 30 species of dinosaur how many individuals do you have for each species well if you've got like millions for each species then Prothero's like assumption in, in his writing is that at any one time in any part of the Morrison, you've got like, you're meant to have, according to the, the view he's you know promoting, like tens upon millions, tens of millions of all these sauropod species, like <laughs> just like looking, look, be like looking out across just a carpet of sauropods, the sea of sauropods. And it's like, well, you know, in actual fact, this is a, there's a bunch of really interesting things about the Mesozoic that make you different from the Cenozoic, I think. I think, and this is the this is the argument going into the current article. I think that the adult populations for really big dinosaurs, sauropods in particular, were really low, probably as low as they could be, and that the bulk of the population, like more than ninety percent of the population, was babies. And there's load. You're, you're familiar with this. I think we've covered it on the podcast before. There's loads of reasons for thinking this is the case. Think about it. So how how like fragile are sauropod skeletons? Not just a sauropod skull, but the entire skeleton. You're talking about like a skeleton that weighs tons. And how many skeletons like that do we actually have for the species concerned? It's like for a lot of these dinosaurs, you're talking about like they're known from one mm. or two or three. <laughs> there's There's a couple of species in the Morrison formation that are known from like over 100 elements. Camarasaurus supremus is known from approximately, well, it was always said to be about 530. I'm sure it's more now. No, that's all Camarasaurus. I'm not as Camarasaurus supremus. But whatever. They're not talking about 500 skeletons. They're talking about like occurrences, I like one bone here and five bones here and 15 bones here. The number of actual, you know, like good remains, certainly skeletons, is really low, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a million like 
um, filters, which means that relatively few animals ever get preserved. But I think that there remains a rare enough, especially for their size, to suggest that the real big animals are comparatively rare. Um, the um, work that's been done on inbreeding depression in animals, you know, how many breeding individuals must you have in a population for it to be sustainable? There's, that depends on what group of animals you're talking about. And it depends, it varies massively among studies. It ranges from a low of 200 animals Sometimes people suggest 50 individuals for some species, and at the high end, it's about 4,000. So at the highest end, let's say that there could be a theoretical minimum of 4,000 mem breeding members of a species um, for them to be viable, and, and even that may be too many. I honestly think that that was the case for a lot of these big sauropods, that at any one time, there were only like a, you know, a few thousand big adults that's not the total population for the species. Yeah, because, exactly, because the, yeah. the, the total population of the species is way higher than that, but they're a lot smaller. So, But even if all those adults go extinct, sorry, all of those adults die, your entire breeding population dies, you've still got those young ones, that, some of which will make it to adulthood, right? Which is, which is part of the reason why the shape of dinosaur populations and dinosaur ecology is not like that of mega mammals from the Cenozoic. It's why you've why dinosaurs were part part of the reason for dinosaurs success is is this it's the fact that they're very fecund especially giant ones like in a lifetime uh a breeding you know female sauropod could produce thousands of eggs and potentially thousands of babies and then the fact that um again taphonomic filters are involved Babies don't preserve particularly well in the fossil record, but there are indications from uh, footprint sites and stuff and the places where the eggs are from, like uh, Alcamuevo in uh, Argentina, there's every indication that babies were super abundant in these ecosystems. So this whole idea that if you've got 30 species, again, we're talking about 30 species over 7 million years at least. The whole idea that that means millions and millions and millions of gigantic animals packed up against one another, filling up the space. It's like, no, no, it would be like, I, I, based on Jim Farlow and colleagues published a study on this in 2010. And um, they used some modeling to actually, you know, come up with some possible numbers for sauropods across the landscape in the late Jurassic of Western North America. And, um, they talk about there being like, like low, low, like like two, three, four individuals per square kilometer or something, and I reckon it was like that. I think that in a you know looking across the Christ, whatever the size of the the environment represented by the Morrison is, but um yeah, looking across the landscape, there'd be there'd be the sauropods obviously would not be equally spaced i'm pretty sure but uh, but if they were this is my quarter stay out <laughs> yeah if they were there'd be kilometers or tens of kilometers between them so um yeah and uh, so that's that's the argument that i'm putting together in the current article um and then the 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 next the one article after that is about um like the productivity of the ecosystems they were living in because he also again no disrespect don Prothero, but he also in this book talks about the fact that 
he says like a you know in the serengeti or whatever today you've got like grasses and and you know leafy plants and delicious grapes and whatever and it's like yeah but sauropods they were eating like cardboard and and cycads which are like ah uh, like ashes in your mouth and oh uh, there's no way they could like sustain it's like have you read any of the stuff that's been done on the productivity of mesozoic plants because all of that stuff about uh cycads ferns ginkgos horsetails conifers all that stuff about them being of no nutritional value whatsoever super low energy is like an assumption that's turned out to be completely inaccurate so in actual fact some of the plant foods that were available to dinosaurian mega herbivores um were actually really energy rich and horsetails ginkgos some groups of ferns are on par with grasses which are the most nutritious plant foods used by herbivores today then there's the fact that the uh, there's some indication that plants were even plants alive today were more nutritious in the high co2 atmosphere of the mesozoic than they were today that's to do with you know the complexities of plant physiology and there's also the fact that any published statements on plant biomass um and productivity um, okay same thing whatever you know the any any assumptions about biomass and productivity for the morrison are like massively conservative and probably way off the scale because they work on a biased fossil record where everyone is assumed relatively open like um, you know, sort of sparse habitat without much greenery. Whereas there are now indications that during at least part of its history, the environments represented by the Morrison were like stuffed full of plants, like a hundred times more than some of the assumptions out there. So, so yeah, you've got super productive plants that could easily fuel giant herbivores. You've got the fact that they were more productive than they are today, contra any you know sort of uh, assumptions. And you've got the fact that the actual volume of the plants as well is way higher than people had expected before so i've got all that to cover in a later later hmm. take so uh yeah um i think it's it's funny how just sort of intuitions and notions of how things come about so where do big animals live well they live in africa like on the serengeti right there's not much there so <laughs> there's not a lot of trees to eat so clearly that's where dinosaurs lived well, no, wait a second. Why do you think that? Because big animals live there today? I mean, they're there because they've been killed everywhere else. It's not because it's a particularly great place for them to live. Um, it's, yeah. uh, you know, um, well, it's the just assumption funny how these things come about. Well, we, we've, I'm sure we've covered this as well, but the, um, the idea that the, the, modern, the modern ecosystems give you some sort of like reliable window into what diversity should be mm. and 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 could be is like no because you're talking about like super depauperate uh, assemblages where most things have been killed so um yeah i so, mean living in a place like england you just think imagine this without the people mm. how many animals there could be you just look at any small part of england in spring and just think the abundance of uh energy that is coming forth bioenergy that is available is is enormous like yeah. there would be so many animals if Absolutely. there weren't people all yes. over the place um, I, I forget i forget who it was that said it but there's a really nice quote about the fact that um 
you know, like we we forget, you know, we've, we've spoken about shifting baseline syndrome, the fact that, you know, you become used to like a lower number of animals, but we mostly forget like how perfect the the planet was for us and the, um, like us as in like, you know, sort of pre-domesticate people, people, you know, living in caves and huts and using spears and stuff. Cause like, yeah, they, whoever it was that said this thing, they said like, you forget you, you could have, you know, 40,000 years ago, you could throw a spear and you would have killed something. <laughs> Which I know that's probably not technically true, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the numbers, the numbers of things that there were, um, this kind of, this kind of relates to that. So, um, just, just to wrap this up, I mean, there's like in all, always in arguments like this, always this like, yeah, we haven't got to the bottom of the alpha taxonomy of the animals. There's definitely going to be things we've got wrong. There's definitely going to be species that need to be synonymized. There's definitely things that are going to turn out to be growth stages of other things. Definitely. But to argue just on principle, I don't believe that there's that many sauropods because they just can't be. It's like, no, you have to like go through the arguments in an actual fact in this particular case and in most of the other cases I can think of. It's like, no, the evidence is showing that your assumptions about what the diversity in animals should be like, what the ecology and environment should be like, are like way off. Mm. And um, yeah, and yeah. Also, think- there's going to be situations where we've just missed things, be- missed um species or reproductively isolated populations because their skeletons look pretty much the same. I mean, I'm sure that's all, that's all over the place. Where soft, I forget, soft tissues uh, differ and the yeah. behavior differs yeah. and stuff, but we just will never know. I, I, I think I, tr- I tried to make that point when we were talking like a while back about um, reproductively isolated units, but the fact that our fossil species aren't, again, this, this goes back to the species problem. Yeah. It's like our fossil species are not comparable to living species because they're only osteo species they're only species based on bones they're not even like morphology or anatomy species because we don't have any of the anatomy that that organisms use to reproductively segregate themselves although so, although i would argue actually just sorry to go back into this conversation a little uh, bit but yeah um but no i think this is i think this is a bit different we do actually a lot of dinosaurs are morphologically well studied in some ways like because you've got bones, you've got a lot of characters there, which might not be apparent in a living animal. And I, I just don't know how well studied a lot of living animals are. are they like, is every species out there being properly dissected and blah, blah, blah? Oh. Or is it just someone picking it up and looking at it? There's the, the number of... Oh, my God. If you actually want the osteology, if you want anatomical that- data on, on, on members of a group, it's like the domestic animals... Yeah, done. Done yeah. really well. Lions, brown bears, gorilla. Yeah, done. <laughs> the rest of the stuff, mm, not But that's so what much. I mean. I'm saying in terms of morphological characters, I think a lot of dinosaurs might be better understood. Not in terms of how, how it interacts with their biomechanics or anything, but just sheer like phylogenetic information from anatomy. I think some dinosaurs might be better understood than a lot of living animals. But but you might be don't want to put words in your mouth, but you might be assuming there that bony anatomy relates well to whole organism biology, and living yeah. animals show that it doesn't. Well, no, so, I'm like, just saying to as in terms of phylogenetics, um, because if you a living animal, two things might look exactly the same and be reproductively isolated too. Um, yeah. So you've actually got to observe them. 
through their whole life cycle. And I'm guessing there's a lot of animals out there where just basically nothing like this has been done. This new snake, snake for example, what did they find? They found one. They looked yeah. at it. <laughs> they took some nice photos. They did some. They would have done some basic osteological stuff because they were yeah. talking about palatal characters and stuff. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, well, in in living animals, there's loads of cases where the what we've regarded in fossils as key important features of the skeleton that allow you to distinguish species don't actually map well onto the rest of the anatomy or onto where the boundaries are between reproductive units. So, like, so two, yeah, two, two specimens that you would regard as members of different species based on osteological differences aren't they're they're actually reproductively within one species and other things that osteologically you can't distinguish are members of radically different thing populations that don't reproduce and aren't even closely related so if anything are yeah our assumptions about where the species bound the reproductive boundaries are in dinosaurs, based on skeletons alone, it's like we're still, you know, anatomy is not synonymous with skeleton. It's like there's there's all the other stuff which is way more important that we just don't have. And if anything, our estimates of numbers of species could be way too low because we're not don't have that, all that other information. Yeah, um, I mean to be honest, like if you you know if you take a section of the Morrison with only two sauropod species, I'd be like, yeah, we're missing some, aren't we? <laughs> two two seems too low. <laughs> to yeah, got to have more than that. Yeah. Okay, we we could we could continue on there, but I think that's the basic idea. I mean, this yep. is currently there are not enough sauropod dinosaurs. Yeah, stop saying there are too many sauropod dinosaurs. Uh, the whole of April was at Tetsu was uh, articles on that subject. Uh, four parts published so far, with the fifth being published hopefully uh, today. But uh, yeah, like I say, like tackling this claim from Don Prothero is kind of you know the start, the first hurdle. But I think it it evolves into like a larger, bigger uh, question about like the shape of mesozoic dinosaur communities and the morrison in particular because that is fascinating really really interesting yeah every time we talk about it i think why don't i paint this more often yeah and i think i really should i think i'm going to start doing that i think it's kind of a it's kind of because uh juvenile and baby dinosaurs are not very well understood anatomically maybe well it's harder to find you know good skeletals and stuff of them um so you'd have to do it all from scratch. Oh, it's just hard. Have you got Saurian, by the way? Just randomly glancing at it at the on my side of my desk here. Um, Saurian, the, uh, the field guide to Hell Creek, Parker, Masner, and Palmer. Uh, yeah. No, did you get that as part of the? How did you, did you just buy that or? I got it as a review copy. Okay. Because I wrote about it on Tetrapodology, which you'd know if you read it. Yeah, well, I was a no, I was a backer of the game. Yeah, well, I don't know. You used to you used to be Robert Backer. Look, you got you got stuff like that in it. I mean, look, look at that. How cool is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's and it's oh, they really went to town on um, uh, the flora. They took the talk about environments, and it's the best guide so far to um, like actual. 
Oh yeah, you know, cool. Like trees yeah. and oh, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, uh, the book, story and the book. So uh, you know, again, most of you will know this already, but it's um, it's like a role-playing computer game where you're a dinosaur and you run around in the Hell Creek environment. Uh, doing the sorts of things dinosaurs did, finding mates, breeding, raising babies, escaping predators and eating. Um, but they did this uh, beautiful like field guide book, which I think is like, it was quite pricey to begin with and is currently out of print or, or out of stock or something like that. Because it's a small operation. They haven't been able to just produce, you know, like 10,000 copies and just throw them at bookshops. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know why I mentioned that. I can't remember what we were talking about beforehand. Plants. Um, draw, yeah, painting. Oh, uh, Lots of babies. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I keep on needing, for this article series, I keep on needing, like, uh, you know, like dioramas of the Morrison that show lots of animals. And and I've done one about 30 years ago, which just shows, like, two diplodocids and a stegosaur. I need to do more of that sort of thing. I probably will do one for my colouring book. Mm. Which, I'm uh, working which is... on a painting of the Tendagaru fauna. Tendagaru, Tendagaru. Anyway, um, I should probably just fill that up with babies. Yeah, yeah I think that's what I'm going to do. I... Cool. <laughs> which animals? You, which animals are you showing? Giraffatine, uh, obviously. Yeah, um, uh, Barasaurus, Adaphosaurus. Um, there, there isn't Barasaurus in the Tendagaru anymore. Oh, isn't it? There's, What's it called? No, what is it? Isn't it Torneria? And there's... No, I should uh, look it up because I'm. it's actually one of my old paintings that I've sort of, you know, I did back in 99 or something and I'm just sort of revamping it. Like drastically, but yeah. Yeah, it should, well, it shouldn't make that much difference to the life appearance because Torneria is still a diplodocene diplodocid. So well, it's still I guess it depends be. whether it's got like the super long neck. Uh, yeah, I don't think they know that. I don't think they've got. They don't it have does have. Of it. You know, it does have very elongated neck vertebrae. I think. I actually don't know what the what it's based on. <coughs> yeah, um, and I've got Kentrosaurus, and I think there's a couple of other things in there, but I've forgotten. Oh, a little um. What are they? What it's are dryosaurs. Dryosaur, yeah, it's got dryosaur in there. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Shall we wrap it up? Yep. Uh, everything's gone pretty bad at this end in terms of the look of the picture. So I'm hoping that the acoustics are still all right. Yeah, you're still good. But cool. All right. John, are you on the internet anywhere? I am on the internet. I am at the John Conway on Twitter. My website is at ooh johnconway.art. Get that, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> John um, Conway has died. <laughs> John Conway has died. Did you see that in the news? Yeah, I tweeted it. And you tweet retweeted me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so John Live actually already covered this. But, um, yeah. Uh, has my voice gone bad again? Because I can no. hear myself lagging. Oh, no. okay, weird. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I immediately immediately tweeted. I said, "John Conway has died in big letters," and they said, "No, it's not that John Conway. Bad luck is another one." So, <laughs> made you very uh, no. popular on the internet. That did. It's uh, I don't I don't I'm joking. I don't want you to die today, but uh, um, just soon. Yeah, so, and in terrible pain. <laughs> 
Um, right, yeah, so that's you done. You tweet, and you've got a website, and you've got a Patreon. Oh, yeah, that's, that's just John Conway, Patreon. And, um, yeah, I'm on Instagram, but I don't use it. Instagram sucks so hard. You suck, Instagram. Um, I blog at... Wow, the lag is so hilarious. It's like it's like I'm in a cave. And I, Hello? Oh, no, stop now. Oh, damn it. <laughs> so I say, hello, and then I hear, hello. But it's actually, no, it, there's no Doppler shifting or anything involved, but whatever. Um, Doppler shifting, does that happen with echoes? No. Um, <laughs> Tetrapod Zoology. I blog at Tetrapod Zoology. Tetzoo.com. Um, I have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. Please consider supporting me. The more support I get, the more time I can devote to writing stuff, Tetrapod Zoology, and finishing my long overdue projects. I tweet at... Lord Vader, our ships have completed their scan of the area and found nothing. If the Millennium Falcon went into light speed, it'd be on the other side of the galaxy by now. Alert all commands. Calculate every possible destination along their last known trajectory. Yes, my lord, we'll find them. Don't fail me again, Admiral. <clears throat> really weird, the emphasis he puts on Admiral, given that <laughs> Piet's already an, an Admiral. Um, Vader exits as the admiral turns to an aide a little more uneasy than when he arrived alert all commands deploy the feet the fleet <laughs> exterior space imperial fleet vader's ship moves away flanked by its fleet of smaller ships the avenger glides off into space in the opposite direction no one is on that ship or on vader's is aware of is aware that clinging to the side of the avenger is the pirate ship, the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> the pirate ship. I like the, the, pi- the, the pirate ship. Yeah, yeah. It's like Han Solo is described as a pirate in Lee Brackett and Lawrence Caston's script for The Empire Strikes Back. And the Millennium Falcon is described as the pirate ship. Arr, me hearties. At Tezu. But he's not a pirate, he's a smuggler. Hey, it's in the script, man. But it's in the script. Is it, have you got the script for the first one? No. <laughs> It's findable online, though, if you really want to read it. They don't even know what the difference between pirates and smugglers is, unless there was a whole backstory, which I don't really care about. But um, Maybe but, he was a pirate, but then they kind of made him nicer for yeah. the film, final draft. Because yeah. there's stuff in here that isn't exactly the same as what is in the film. Oh, my God. Wow. Kind of so like how, how you... they made Indiana Jones not a pedophile anymore. What? <laughs> what? Look it up. <laughs> and it's in there in the film. <laughs> no. Yep. That's not right. Read about it. Read about it. It's not good. And you realise it's, 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 it's in the film. Yep. When, he's, when he goes to see What's-A-Face in Tibet, and she says, I was a child, and then you do the calculations of how old she was talking about being. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I saw you. It mean. was part of his backstory. Like, story he was a pedophile. We meet. 
We walk into a classroom, 1930s, Pedophile. 1920s. You know, we don't want to get into the it, semantics of all this too this much, is, but yeah. This is Dr. Indiana Jones, teacher, archaeologist, paedophile. <laughs> God. Okay. Um, Just thought I'd uh, uh, ruin another great Harrison Ford character there. How would you describe Bosk? Bosk? Bosk. From The Empire Strikes Back. I don't even know who that is. Bosk is, a, is basically like a, a humanoid reptile. He's a bounty hunter. You see him... Uh, on the on the, the deck of the, the Super Stardust Stro and the Empire Strikes Back, one of the several bounty hunters that Darth Vader's brought in. And he's he's a humanoid reptile because for the first Star Wars film, they just had like a whole bunch of like props they got off the shelf, like wolf people and things. And they got some like li- lizard masks and they just had a couple of people sat in around the um, mm. Moss Eisley Cantina that are just, you know, people in lizard masks. And so they, they then turn that into a character so that there's humanoid reptiles. Well, in the script here... The group standing before Vader is a bizarre array of galactic fortune hunters. Not bounty hunters, fortune hunters. There is Bosk, a slimy tentacled monster with two huge bloodshot eyes in a soft baggy face. What? <laughs> well, Zucker. Zuckus and Dengar, two battle-scarred, mangy human types. IG-88, a battered, tarnished chrome wardroid. And Boba Fett, a man in a weapon-covered, armored spacesuit. <clears throat> so you still haven't seen The Mandalorian? No. You're not going to watch it, are you? Uh, you know what? I'm kind of over Star Wars. I think it's kind of done. Yeah. Like, well, for the, when it comes done, to the films, We're done. Come on. No, we're done with yeah, the whole yeah, yeah. thing. We're done with the whole thing. I'm oh, over no, it. I'm no, over it. The man- the Mandalorian is really good. I really like The Mandalorian. Yeah, all right. It could yeah. be good. I just don't really care about the Star Wars <laughs> thing anymore. Just We don't have to to watch The Mandalorian because they're these like, small standalone stories. It's got none of the crap that ruined the, uh, the, the most recent films. No, but I don't, I don't even think that the... See, I just don't approach Star Wars like all the Star Wars fans seem to. I don't think the recent films ruined it. I don't care about the plots very much. The plots never really mattered. I don't really care about the universe all that much. I approach Star Wars a bit more like a mood piece, I guess, right? And I'm just kind of done with the whole universe, the whole feeling, the whole thing of it. Just sounds to me kind of bored with it. Just want a different story, a different thing, different things. Definitely sounds like you need to watch The Mandalorian. (laughs) (laughs) A mood piece. So it's basically uh, it's been it's it's, an aesthetic um, vision, and you know, and it's like, well, okay. Yeah, it was cool. I enjoyed it, but I'm like, yeah, let's move on. I'll tell you that every time I watch an episode of The Mandalorian, I've watched all of them so far, um, it's basically pitched as a Western. Yeah. It's a Western, which is the original, obviously, kind of take on Star Wars. Star Wars is not... What what whatever happened to it in later years? You know, it's a western. It's goodies goodies versus baddies in space, even with a western theme tune playing in the back. Um, and they just really captured that really well in the Mandalorian, I think. So, uh, uh, and the the IG droid in it was really good. And uh, Baby Yoda, he's pretty cool. But uh, okay, let, let's stop there. Had enough. <sighs> Baby now. Yoda, no, no, no. <laughs>